Amen. Well, thank you, Pastor Mark and the church family as always. Just a reminder, Wednesday evenings we have resumed our Wednesday prayer time at 6.30, so if you have needs or prayer requests, please let the church office know and make plans if you can to join us as we gather each Wednesday night for a time of prayer. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles with me and I can hear pages flipping, so you're already doing that. Turn with me to the book of Daniel today. We are beginning uh, a new uh, chapter-by-chapter study of this book, a new series, making our way through Daniel. Um, And uh, today, as we often do, we're going to pause and give just an overview of the book to orient us to what's going on and when is it going on and some of the big ideas uh, of this uh, book. So Daniel, if you turn to chapter 1, we won't be diving into a lot of text. I'm going to do a lot of summarizing today, but in the weeks ahead, we'll come back in great detail. If my relationship status with the book of Daniel was on Facebook, it would read complicated. It all started in the spring of 2001. I was taking a class at Liberty University called Daniel Revelation with Dr. Ed Heinsohn. Some of you may have taken that class or be in it. One of our assignments in the class was to write a brief summary of the whole book, uh, both of Daniel and Revelation. And I was determined to do well on this assignment. So every day after class, I would go to the computer lab and I would work feverishly, taking my notes and everything that I knew and would start typing on this project. Well, believe it or not, this is going to be hard for some of you to, to imagine. But in 2001, the internet was just a thing. So I decided I was going to use this newfangled thing called the internet and try to find all the Daniel stuff that I could to make this paper as as good as possible. So I learned how to copy and paste. And I started finding graphs and charts and paintings and pictures and all this stuff that I could just to, to snazz up my paper. I was going to make it superb. And by the time I finished, I had done the impossible. I wrote a summary of Daniel that was longer than the book of Daniel. (laughs) I still don't know how I did that. But my paper had everything in it. It was marvelous. I mean, every page had a chart or a graph or something that I had found. I had never worked harder. I had never been prouder. I knew it was an A-plus paper, so I bought this snazzy cover and spiral-bound dill, and I turned it in and just waited to get my A. Well, a few classes later, they were handing back the graded papers. And all my friends got theirs, but I didn't. And part of me thought, well, they probably just sent it on to the publishers, you know, just directly (laughs) to get it out there, you know. So a few minutes later, Dr. Heinzen comes into class, and he's holding up my paper. Now, this right here is my actual, this is the paper that I turned in. He said, Scarlet! Who is Scarlet? And I raised my hand, and he made me come up to the front of the class. And he said, uh, Class, this is the best, most thorough paper I have ever received on the book of Daniel. And I thought, Well, give me my doctorate now, and I'll be out of your hair, you know, I'll just move on. And he goes, And he said, But with one exception. And he opened it up, and I know you can't see this because it's kind of 
small. He opened it up to one of the charts in my thing. It's all colorful, you can tell, the statue and all that jazz. He said, this chart was published by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. <laughs> and he goes, Scarlett, are you a Seventh-day Adventist? And at this point, I just went. <laughs> and he said, then where did you get this chart? And I said, after I swallowed hard, um, the Internet? And he turned to the class and said, don't get your theology from the Internet. And I have never forgotten that lesson that day from uh, Dr. Heinsohn. He, by the way, was super gracious. He gave me a 96 on the paper and said, if you give me a copy of your paper, I'll give you the four points back. So I did wind up getting a good grade. Although, every time I see him, he still calls me Seventh Day Scarlet. So I don't know <laughs> what... <laughs> oh, me... So needless to say, I have some serious PTSD when it comes to the book of Daniel. We have a complicated relationship. And I would be lying to you if I said I wasn't intimidated in opening this book and diving into it in the weeks that are before us. But you know, as I think about it, here's what's crazy. It's taken me 20 years to now realize that God was using that moment to teach me something important. You see, I thought I knew Daniel because I could tell you all about the symbols and the dreams and the prophecies and the signs. And while it is true, I knew the details of Daniel. I had completely missed one of the main lessons of Daniel. God resists the proud. God resists the proud. Why was Israel in exile? Full of pride. Why is Nebuchadnezzar humbled into a beast? of the field because he was proud? Why was Belshazzar slain overnight and assassinated? Because he was proud. And church, I'm convinced that what we need more than anything else in studying the book of Daniel is not a colorful end times chart. It's this little thing called humility. You cannot approach the book of Daniel with pride any more than you can approach the God of Daniel with pride. Some people come to this book and they, 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 they get wrapped up in the mystery and they, they will come to it and say, all right, Daniel, show me you know, who the, the, the Antichrist is or show me who this beast is or show me who this little loudmouth horn is. Show me who these people are. And they don't ask the most important question, God, show me who I am in light of who you are? And that's the question that I had failed to ask. Brothers and sisters, it is not enough to grow in knowledge. We must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, the book of Daniel is, can be a very confusing book. 
And you know what happens throughout the book of Daniel? There are points in the book when Daniel doesn't know what to do with the information that he has. You know what he does every time? He stops, he humbles himself, and he prays. And church family, I can't think of a better way to start this series than to start it in the spirit of Daniel. Because I know I need it. I've tried this book in pride before. It didn't work out very well. So would you join with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we call this Daniel's book, but truly it is your book. We confess with Daniel that you give wisdom to the wise, you give knowledge to men, and that you reveal the profound and hidden things. And like Daniel, we request compassion from you, O God of heaven, concerning this mystery. We ask, O Lord, that you would humble our hearts, open our eyes, and through this study in the coming weeks, may we, the sons of men, become more like the great and glorious Son of Man, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. In the coming weeks, as I said, we're going to unpack this book chapter by chapter, but today I want to just get a quick bird's eye view of some of the key elements of the book of Daniel. If you're taking notes today, you, you know how we do this each time, but just real quickly, we'll look at the background, the outline, and the message of the book. So again, if you're taking notes, the background the outline, and then the message. Let's start with the background to the book of Daniel. I imagine with me for just a quick second that you get a text message that reads, I'll come get you at 2 p.m. Well, if you got that from your wife, it's probably good news. If you got that from a mob boss, it's probably bad news. The difference is what we call authorship. Who wrote it matters. And while that's true with every book in the Bible, it is especially true when it comes to the book of Daniel. There are two major camps as to the authorship of Daniel, and for lack of a better term, there's the historic view and the modern view. The historic view that I'm putting before you is that the book was written by Daniel, that Daniel was the author. The modern view holds that it was written by some Jewish ghostwriter many years later. Now, there's at least two good reasons, there's many more, but at least two to hold to the historic view. First, Jesus believed that Daniel was the author. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is quoting Daniel chapter 9. And like a good college student writing a paper, Jesus cites his quotation. He footnotes it. And he says, this reference to the abomination of desolation, quote, was spoken through Daniel, the prophet. So Jesus believed that Daniel was the author. But not only did Jesus believe that Daniel was the author of Daniel, get this, Daniel believed that Daniel was the author of Daniel. The phrase, I, Daniel, shows up six times in the book. And the pronoun I by itself is sprinkled sort of autobiographically through the book 67 other times. 
So either Daniel wrote the book and Jesus told the truth, or some other guy wrote the book and lied about it 73 times in the book. So there's a, a lot going on here, and there's a lot that could be said, but I think those two reasons alone show us the author of the book was Daniel. That brings us to our next question and, and kind of answers the next question. When was the book written? What is the date of the book of Daniel? Well, the date of the book I'm, I'm proposing is around the year 536 B.C. Again, that's the historic view to the book of Daniel as to when it was written. written. The, the more modern view dates the book a lot, lot later, around the year 160 B.C. Now, it's, it's, you kinda, I kind of have to talk about this. I don't usually like to talk. I don't, you say, why, why on earth would somebody date the book of Daniel so much later, so much further after the book of Daniel? Well, there's actually some really compelling reasons, to be honest with you, when you look at it. But, but one of the main reasons, I think, uh, 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 that many people date the book when they do is because of one chapter in the book, and that's Daniel chapter 11. Now, we're going to get there, so just hold your horses, I promise you. But listen, truth be told, if I, if I was not a Christian, I've said this for years, if I was not a Christian and I was looking for reasons to reject the Bible, here's my top three reasons. The virgin birth and resurrection, right? That's a tough one. The problem of evil, that's a tough one. And number three, Daniel chapter 11. I'm totally convinced. Daniel 11 is one of the most incredible chapters in the entire Bible, assuming that Daniel actually wrote it. Daniel 11 describes 300 years of world events outside of Israel. Things like Alexander the Great, the rise and fall of the Hellenistic kingdoms, other details about what we call the Maccabean era, and it's recorded with such incredible precision and such incredible accuracy that some scholars conclude nobody could know all of this stuff ahead of time. Well, I can think of one person, and his name is God. In fact... Daniel says that God doesn't just know the times, God changes the times. That God doesn't just predict the kings and kingdoms, God removes and establishes kings and kingdoms. And so Daniel chapter 11, I think, is, is an astounding chapter, and it, it only strengthens the case that this book comes to us from Daniel by the work of the Holy Spirit. So 536 is about the year towards the end of Daniel's life. One other note about the book, if you notice the events of this book, you're there in Daniel chapter 1. Notice real quick, chapter 1, verse 1, it reads, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That event happened around 605 B.C. I know that date doesn't mean a lot to you, but just, just 605. Now skip forward to the end of chapter 1, verse 21. It says, And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. That's a whole nother kingdom later. 121 is like a little preview, a foreshadowing of the end of the book, which is why I think this was written at the end of Daniel's life, because at the beginning, he kind of hints at the end. 
Cyrus is a whole other kingdom that comes after this. And so the span between Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus is from 605 to around 536, which so covers 70 years of history. So that's what we have here in, in terms of the events of the book of Daniel. So that leads us to the third question. What about the audience of the book? Who is the book of Daniel written for or to? Most of the Old Testament prophets wrote to Israel inside Israel. Daniel instead wrote to Israel outside Israel. He and they were in Babylon. One way that we know this is because the, the, the book of Daniel is one of the few bilingual books in the Scripture. Most Old Testament, uh, the 39 books of the Old Testament were written in Hebrew with a few exceptions. And Daniel's one of those exceptions. There's uh, chapters 2 through 7 were originally written in Aramaic. Now, if you've got questions about the Aramaic in the book of Daniel, email those to Jill Ross at whatever her email is, dot com, okay? The only thing I know about Aramaic in Daniel is that it was widely spoken by the Babylonians. And this was written while they were in exile. It was written while Daniel was doing the job, it seems, or at least in, in, uh, in, in uh, concert with the fact that they were in exile. Now, why was Israel in exile? That is such an important question to this book. And the short answer to that question is sin. The long answer to that question is what we read earlier in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. God had made a covenant with Israel, his people, and they were expected to keep it. God said, I'll keep my end of the bargain. You guys just keep your end of the bargain. And, and God says, if you don't keep your end, I'm going to judge you. And God sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to get their attention, to remind them of this, and they wouldn't listen. And the nation of Israel became stubborn and hard-hearted, and they thought to themselves, God will never judge us. God will never spank us. God, we are God's nation. We're God's people. He would never do something like that. He would never leave the capital city of Jerusalem in ruins. It's impossible. And they had bought into their own Old Testament version of the, old, uh, of the prosperity gospel because they believed bad things don't happen to God's people. And they were arrogant, and they soon discovered that God resists the proud. And so they were sent into exile. And exile was, an was a confusing place to live as a Jew. No temple, no sacrifices, no worship. I mean, when, what do you do when Babylon is your home? What, what do you do in being faithful to God when your government leader absolutely rejects God outright. What do you do when you're constantly pressured by the, the culture and literally your neighbors, the people around you, to compromise your faith so that you're on the same page as them? What do you do when your faith is challenged or outlawed or worse yet, persecuted? Those are great questions from the book of Daniel and those are the questions Israel was asking and my friends, those are some of the same questions we're asking. With each passing day, it seems that our own nation is slouching towards Babylon more and more. 
And some Christians would say, well, what we need to do is assimilate with the culture and just become like them. Others would say, no, we need to dominate the culture and crush them. And Daniel comes along and says, don't you know there's a third way? It's called being in the world, but not of the world. It is possible, Daniel says, to to be in exile and be faithful in exile. To be godly in exile. And so he writes to Israel in exile, showing them and telling them how to do that. So that's the background of the book. Let's talk briefly about the outline of the book. The book of Daniel is 12 chapters long. It takes about an hour and a half to read from start to finish. I would encourage you to do it if you haven't at some point. It's the shortest of all the major prophets, with the exception, of course, of the book of Lamentations. And the book of Daniel can be very easily divided into two halves. The first six chapters and the last six chapters. I looked at some really complicated outlines this week. I've decided to go with the simpler outline, and you can all thank me for it later. All right, there's two halves to this book. The first half of the book uh, contains stories about Daniel. Chapters 1 to 6, stories about Daniel. There's basically one story per chapter. They happen roughly, it seems, in chronological order. And if you remember the dates from earlier, this is actually helpful. If you remember the dates from earlier, that means the book of Daniel opens in chapter 1. He's probably about 15 or 16 years of age. And by the time you get to the lion's den in chapter 6, he's 85. That's a very different picture of Daniel than what we get in Sunday school as kids sometimes. He lived this entire time under this ruthless pagan kingdom. And a lot can happen in 70 years. You say, what happens in 70 years? Let me just summarize chapter by chapter of the book. If you want to flip pages, you can. We're not going to see specific verses, but just follow along briefly. In chapter 1, God brings Daniel and his teenage friends into Babylon. And they refuse to eat the king's non-kosher food. And in what may be the most incredible miracle in the whole Bible, get this, these boys get fat from eating vegetables. That's that's almost as good as walking on water, man. How on earth did that happen? Well, by God's hand it happened, and in chapter 1 they prosper. In chapter 2, the king has a dream, and he tells his advisors, he says, I want you to not only tell me the meaning of the dream, but tell me what the dream was itself. And they can't do it. But Daniel can do it because God tells him both the dream and the meaning of the dream, and he's faithful, and he prospers. In chapter 3, Daniel's friends refuse to worship the king's 14-carat gold skyscraper, and they get thrown into a giant oven. And Daniel's friends, God protects them and spares them and blesses them, and he might even visit them in the middle of the fiery furnace. In chapter 4, the king writes a a letter confessing his, his ignorance and his arrogance. And in this letter, he talks about how God struck him with this grotesque sickness and and in the process it crippled his body but even more it humbled his heart and in the middle of the book we come to what really is one of the heart lessons of the book that the king nebuchadnezzar determines that god resists the proud in chapter five his son learns the same lesson 
a new king comes along and throws a kegger of a wild party and there's eating and drinking and feasting and it's filled with all of this and all of a sudden a mysterious hand appears and starts writing on the wall and Daniel's called to explain the writing and Daniel says, God has told me the meaning. The meaning is your time is up. And that night Belshazzar discovers that God resists the proud and he was assassinated and his kingdom overthrown. In chapter 6, the new king of this new kingdom tries to ban prayer. And the gray-haired Daniel engages in a little civil disobedience. And he's thrown into a pit filled with lions. And once again, God closes the mouths of the lions and spares his life and delivers Daniel, and Daniel prospers. So that's the stories about Daniel. You probably got those in Sunday school as a kid. Then we come to the second half of the book, which is less familiar to most people. And here, number two, we have what are the visions of Daniel in chapter 7 through 12. The visions of Daniel. Now, some people think of this section as prophecy, and that's okay. That's a simple way to put it. The more precise term is what we call apocalyptic literature. You say, what is apocalyptic literature? It's like prophecy on LSD, okay? I don't know how else to describe it, all right? That's the, it's the best way I could. It is an intense form of prophecy that has these psychedelic, bizarre images that are kind of smashed together with symbols and numbers and wild colors, and it comes at you from all sides, and it's hard to understand. Do you remember in school, remember looking at paintings by Pablo Picasso, right? That's what it's like. Like, it's, I, think, I think it was called cubism. You look at it, and you're like, Pablo, why do you have two eyes on the same side of the face? Like, nobody has two eyes on the same side of the face, right? But he's like, he's, he's got some message. I don't know what it was, but he had some message and making it distorted. That's what apocalyptic literature does. It takes familiar symbols and images and things and distorts them a little bit and puts them together to show you a message. And, and we oftentimes like zoom in like Picasso and try to see what is this thing, but really you're supposed to step back and look at the whole thing and realize the message is found in that. It's safe to say the book of Daniel is to the Old Testament, at least this part, what the book of Revelation is to the New Testament. In fact, I think the two books should be read together in tandem. And so we have in chapter 7 through 12 these visions. What are these visions at the end of the book? Well, in chapter 7 and 8, Daniel is now the one who has the dream. And a man who interprets everybody else's dream can't even interpret his own dream. And in this dream, God shows him what you might call some fantastic beasts and where to find them. He reveals that the kingdoms of this world are eventually going to be swallowed up by the kingdom of God. And it's through these bizarre pictures and images that God teaches him this. In Daniel chapter 9, he is having his morning devotion in the book of Jeremiah. And in reading Jeremiah, he realizes what we saw earlier, that Jeremiah said there's 70 years of exile, and then it'll be up. And Daniel, who's an older man, now realizes the time is almost up. And so knowing what the Old Testament says, Daniel drops to his knees and begins begging for God's forgiveness for the sins of his people and the sins of their past. 
And he starts confessing their sins. And the angel Gabriel comes to him and says, Daniel, God is going to answer your prayer. God is going to take care of the sins of the people. And how is he going to do it? By sending the Messiah. Israel had been cut off into exile. So God's answer was to send a Messiah who would also be cut off from the land of the living. Who would be the payment for the sins of God's people, and who would die in their place. And so Daniel is assured that the coming Messiah would be the answer to the sins that he was praying for. Then in chapters 10, 11, and 12, Daniel is given what is the vision of all visions. These chapters are this sweeping prediction of major world events that happened during what we sometimes call the 400 years of silence and even beyond that, the time of Christ and beyond. And God is promising His people in this section that, that, listen, as you go through history, after the exile, there's going to be periods of world history that are going to be confusing. There's going to be the rising and falling of nations. Wars are going to come and go. And there's going to be moments of chaos and hardship. And you're going to constantly be thinking to yourself, it's the end of the world. And Daniel says, okay, God, then when is the end of the world? And God says, don't worry about it. Seal it all up. And the very last verse of the book of Daniel, God says to Daniel, quote, but as for you, go your way until the end of the age. It's a lot like what Jesus says. The end is not yet, but those who persevere to the end shall be saved. The message of Daniel is a call to be faithful even in the midst of troublesome times. So that's the two halves of Daniel. By the way, some people prefer the first half because it's familiar from their childhood. Other people like the second half because it's unfamiliar and mysterious. My, my real, real concern about that and my challenge to you is some people what they do is they want to read the first six chapters and they get to the end of that and they go, oh, well, I don't really understand that, so I'm just not going to read it. Other people go to the last six chapters and go, well, that's for children in Sunday school. I don't need those first chapters. I want this stuff. Daniel is not two books. It's one book. And the stories inform the visions, and the visions inform the stories. And once you read them all together, then you're in a better position to understand the message of the book of Daniel. So what is the message of Daniel? I want to leave you with two questions. Two questions as to the message of the book of Daniel. I think the first question that Daniel asks us is this. Do you believe that God is in control? Do you believe that God is in control? Israel was having a hard time believing this, and maybe for good reason. The Babylonians had whipped them and hauled them off, and Israel felt abandoned, weak, outnumbered, defeated, forgotten, hopeless, defenseless, powerless. They felt like this is going nowhere, and Israel was there in exile, and many of them are asking, where on earth 
is God. And Daniel says, he's not on earth. He's on the throne. He's sitting where he's always been. Have you lost sight that our God is overseeing the affairs of men? See, deep down, some of us, like Israel, we've bought into a, a kind of prosperity gospel. Maybe not an economic version, but some of us have a circumstantial version of the prosperity gospel. If I trust God, then life should go well, and I shouldn't have any problems, and things should go smoothly, and my kids, and my work, and the government, and everything should just work out exactly like I want it to. And when it doesn't, we go, oh, what happened? And Daniel go, what do you mean what happened? We say, where is God? We think that if, if, we, if, if we understand this, we think that life should be easy peasy, lemon squeezy. But sometimes life is stressy, depressy, lemon zesty, right? It's just, it's not easy. And Daniel says, hey, even when it's like that, God's in control. He's still in charge. Our headlines are a little different than Daniel's, but the feelings are there. Global events, political upheaval, godless leaders, worldly pressures. And sometimes we ask the question, we, we need to ask, be asked this same question, do you believe that God is in control? Even when life stinks, do you believe it? When you're facing a fiery furnace, is he still in control? When you're being told not to pray or else the lion's den is yours, do you still believe he's in control? Do you believe that God is in control of politics? Daniel did. You think you disagree with the president or the governor? Try having Nebuchadnezzar as your king. By the way, some people say, well, today you can't be a godly person and work in this administration or that. Would you have said that about Daniel? He was right where God wanted him to be because God is in control. Daniel was respectful to these pagan men. He is kind to them until they tell him to disobey God. Up to that point, he serves them. Why? Because Daniel knew that God's in charge of who's in charge. He knew there was no authority except that which comes from God. And so he respected earthly authorities because he feared the heavenly authority because he had seen visions of what he was going to do to those who didn't submit to him. Elections come and go, presidents come and go, governors come and go, but God is here to stay. Do you believe that God's in control of world events? Daniel did. Every day it was a new nation, new problem. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. We see it ourselves. We pick up the news. It's Afghanistan, China, Russia, North Korea, and some Christians get so bent out of shape thinking to themselves, oh no, this nation's going to do this and this nation will be the undoing of all things. My friend, listen, I don't mean to sound unpatriotic, but Daniel teaches us that every nation, including America, has an expiration date. It's not going to last. Because one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And Daniel believed it. 
Wars come and go, countries come and go, economies come and go, but God is here to stay. So Daniel challenges us. Do you believe that God is in control? That leads us to a second and maybe just as important question, maybe more important in some ways. Daniel not only asks us, do you believe that God is in control? He also asks us, do you behave like God is in control? Do you behave like this? The stories about Daniel and the visions of Daniel teach us one main theological truth. God is sovereign. And my friends, the sovereignty of God is not just a doctrine to confess. It is an invitation to trust. It is also a call to action. The sovereignty of God is both a reminder that says, calm down and stand up. Understand who God is and what he's doing in the place that he has us and where he has us in his unrolling, unfolding plan. Do you live like God is really in control? There's so many examples in Daniel, but the one that just stood out to me all week long is Daniel chapter 3 when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are standing there and all of their friends, even some of their Jewish brethren, are, are, are nose down in the dirt, bowing, prostrating themselves before Nebuchadnezzar's idol, before his statue, and worshiping this pagan god. And, Nebuch and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand there with steel in their spine and leather in their skin and courage in their heart and they stand firm and they look the most powerful man in the world in the eye and they say oh Nebuchadnezzar we don't owe you an explanation for this but we'll tell you this much our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace and Nebuchadnezzar even if he doesn't we will not bow. We fear him more than we fear you. That's behaving like God is in control. It is a commitment of resolve and faithfulness. Time and time again, Daniel and his friends would rather die than disobey God. They would rather lose their life than give up their prayer life. Integrity was more important than food. Truth was more important than acceptance. Faith was more important than sight. And every single chapter of this book, Daniel lives like the truth is actually true. And the question of Daniel is, what about us? Do we have that kind of courage? Are we willing and ready to take the heat? to stand up, to stand out, to be different, to actually figure out what it means to be in the world, even serving godless people, and yet to not be of the world. Daniel asked the question, are you willing to calm down and stand up? Because God's in control. You, you want to know the, bump, the, the book of Daniel in a bumper sticker? Here's the bumper sticker. God rules, so act like it. 
That's the challenge. Daniel is convinced through his visions of who God is and what he's doing, and he says, if that is the truth and that is true, then I have nothing to fear of earthly powers and men. My loyalty is ultimately to God. Do you believe that? Do you behave like that? You say, Pastor, that's hard sometimes. Nobody said it was easy. And when we fail at this, when we refuse to do this, when we find ourselves being disobedient, guess what? We are reminded that God, He resists the proud. But the good news is He gives grace to the humble. My friends, if you have failed in calming down and standing up, humble yourself before God. And the same Messiah who was cut off to pay for the sins of God's people has been cut off to pay for your sins too. And there is forgiveness. There is renewal. There is grace for you today. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And though we've just flown over this book in, in big terms, we thank you, Father, for how it, its message overall challenges us. And Father, I ask and pray that in the coming weeks you would work in us. But Lord, even right now, would you challenge us? Even right now, would you change us? Even right now, would you help us to see where we have failed to understand and trust that you're in control? God, forgive us for trying to be the ones holding the steering wheel. Forgive us for, for worry. Forgive us, Lord, for presumptuousness. Forgive us of our pride. And we pray like Daniel that we would humble ourselves in absolute confidence before you, the God who reigns in majesty. And may people see, not us, but may they see you at work in us as we trust you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.